If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is certainly a classic passage of Scripture, and in it we learn the mind of Christ. I don't know if you have ever been asked this question. I have, based on my behavior, been asked this question rather aggressively or forcefully. It is this one. What were you thinking? Have you ever been asked that question? What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? What was the source of your behavior based on what was going on in your mind? Interestingly, in Philippians chapter 2, we in a sense understand what Jesus was thinking. We in a sense understand what was in his mind, the source of his actions from what his mindset was. And there is an invaluable lesson for us. I can tell you something this morning that will alter the trajectory of next year for you. It is simply in your application, probably better said, your submission to the truth in this passage of Scripture this morning. For you see, within each of us, there is a battle that is raging. It is that age-old, ugly sin of pride fighting against what is an increasingly rare virtue in our world, humility. The desire for us to have some status, the desire for us to achieve our agenda, the desire for us to be understood versus our yearning for Christ-likeness. I think oftentimes we keep this a private war. Sometimes we're led to believe maybe we're the only ones that are actually engaged in this conflict. I can assure you, everyone around you this morning is fighting this same sin of pride. In fact, only one has ever overcome the sin of pride. That was Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 11 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Jesus is the only one who could say truthfully, I am meek and I'm lowly. Sandwiched between a simple invitation and a promise. The invitation is follow me, Jesus would say. I am meek and lowly and you will find rest. What that is, is an invitation to humility. Jesus is inviting us to develop his mindset. What were you thinking, Jesus, when you humbled yourself? In Philippians chapter 2, we understand his mind. Notice with me in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Whether you're aware of it or not, we just took a stair step down in humiliation. In the linguistics of those verses, we are descending in humiliation. 
In fact, you cannot read those verses without seeing manifest the Christmas story. We're certainly at the end of Christmas week now, beginning a brand new week and a brand new year. But right in there is the Christmas story. God with us, Emmanuel, leaving heaven and coming to earth to die for our sins. There's a great stress in those verses on the reality that the humiliation, the humbling of Jesus Christ was a voluntary, decisive act. It was self-imposed. In fact, in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. In verse 8, he humbled himself. It's reflexive language. It's pointing to a personal decision there. Jesus himself. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. This humbling, this humility was self-imposed. That was the mind of Christ. If you were to ask Jesus on the cross, what were you thinking? We've just learned what he was thinking, the source of his actions in his mind. And this is what the apostle has said to us. This should be your mind as well. It's a mandate. It's not a suggestion. It's not a hope for the elite spiritual. It is an expectation for the common everyday believer to have the mind of Christ, to carry on life with the humility that Jesus did. Now, that's a big concept, is it not? Humility, that's such a vast concept. Help me to understand exactly what Jesus wants from me. There is within the study of Scripture a rule of study. It's called the rule of first mention. Now, you don't always use it when you're trying to preach, but it does help to go back to understand a particular doctrine or word within Scripture. And the rule of first mention just simply conveys that you go back to the first time this concept or this doctrine or this word was used within Scripture, and you will understand in its simplest form what the Bible wants. Now, the rest of Scripture will certainly fill out all the details, but we can learn a lot about what is being asked of us if we go back to the beginning of this scriptural concept. First mention of humbling in the Bible arrives in Exodus chapter 10. Now, I want to set the stage for just a moment to help us understand what is expected of us. So from Exodus chapter 10, we'll back up to Exodus chapter 5. And in Exodus chapter 5, Moses is first approaching Pharaoh, and he's going to speak to him as God's mouthpiece to try to get the children of Israel to be let go. And here's what we read. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in, told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Clearly, that's a mandate from God to Pharaoh, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Now, Moses could have responded to that. Okay, Pharaoh, you don't know who the Lord is yet, but you will know who the Lord is. He doesn't say that. Now, Pharaoh rightly perceives something. 
When he asks, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He is conveying to us that your perception of God dictates your obedience or your disobedience. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Who is he that I should obey him? Well, you are going to find out who he is, Pharaoh, and then you will have a decision to make. Let's fast forward to Exodus chapter 9. Now, just before the seventh plague. So in six plagues now, God has revealed himself to Pharaoh. He has revealed himself as creator. He has revealed himself as judge. He has revealed himself as preeminent over Egyptian gods. And before the seventh plague, we read this in Exodus 9, 17. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people that thou will not let them go. Now stay with me for just a second. Let's put in a little work. In Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh is beginning to perceive something. That perception of God dictates obedience. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let the people go? Six plagues have occurred. Before the seventh plague, it is astounding to Moses. You are still exalting yourself, Pharaoh, in that you are not obeying the mandate of God. Exalting himself is the exact opposite of humbling himself. So we're beginning to put something together. True humility equates to obeying God. Now, God's going to make it very explicit when we arrive in Exodus chapter 10. And here is our rule of first mention. Exodus 10 and verse 3. Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews. Here it is. How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. We are being introduced now scripturally to this concept, not a definition, a scriptural awareness we are developing. Humbling ourselves equates to obeying God. Exalting ourselves is equal to disobeying God, and God asks the question, how long will you continue to exalt yourself and disobey me? Rather, I instruct you to humble yourself in response to the plagues and obey me. Pharaoh, humble yourself. That is, obey God. Pharaoh, humble yourself. That is, acknowledge that you are not God, that you are not in charge, that you don't always get your way, that God is God. This aids our understanding. When we arrive in Philippians chapter 2, and before we get really practical about what that means for us, let's understand this biblical concept as lived out by Christ. Verse 6 of Philippians 2. Now the humbling of Christ. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There's two very important phrases in there about Jesus. Jesus was being in the form of God. He did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Let me help you understand that. The Greek word there for being, it's not the common verb, but rather it stresses the essence of a person's nature. It is literally a continuous state. 
He was being, he was continuing in the form of, it was the essence of his nature that he was God. Paul's point there is that Jesus Christ is continuously existing in the form of God. Now stay with me just a second, I'm going somewhere. Here now in Philippians 2, he was saying Jesus is God. This is a theological declaration. He was being in the form of God. It is substantiated, it is strengthened by that second phrase, he was equal to God. What he is driving us to see from the beginning is notice the height from which Jesus began his descent into humiliation. He was, in essence, continuously carrying the nature of God. Jesus is God. He is equal with God. This is the height from which he began his descent. It's been Christmas week. I don't know about you, but we have been somewhat indulgent for Christmas week. How many of you have maybe eaten a little more than normal? Right on, right on. How many of you have maybe slept a little more than normal? Say, yeah, we have little kids. Sorry. Someday they'll grow up. We've slept in a little bit this week. Now, sleeping in does not mean that you, like, sleep till noon. It just means you have the privilege of, like, sleeping until you wake up instead of being coerced into being awakened by a normal schedule. My wife and I have made a micro-adjustment to our indulgence. That is, we have not set our coffee pot to start on its own. See, in the normal sphere of things, the coffee starts at the same time, you get up at the same time, you drink the coffee at the same time, but you're thinking to yourself, tomorrow, I don't have to get up when I normally get up. So rather than impose some starting point on my day by setting the coffee pot, what we'll do instead is we'll pre-make the coffee, and by will, I mean she'll pre-make the coffee, and in the morning, it will fall to one of us to go downstairs and hit the button to start the coffee. Now, you wake up in the morning, and you have this thought process in your mind, I am comfortable. There is no coffee downstairs. One of us has to get out of this bed, go downstairs, and push the coffee pot button. Then it is going to be expected of us to go over and push the button to turn the Christmas tree lights on. Then it's going to be expected that we'll open the windows across the back of the house, letting in the light and beginning the day. Now you think to yourself, that doesn't sound like a really tough set of chores. Oh, but it is when you're in warm bed. And the thought of having to go hit two buttons and open windows is overwhelming. And so in your mind, you wake up first and you think to yourself, I wonder if she's awake. I wonder who's going to be the one that has to go downstairs and start the coffee and turn the Christmas tree lights on and open the window. And who's going to be the one that gets to come down like a princess and just have a cup of coffee already ready, Christmas tree lights on, and windows open. I wonder who's going to be royal and who's going to be the servant. What a tough precipice to jump from this warm bed to go hit two buttons and open windows. We grasp that's not a really big sacrifice. 
But on the human plane, all of us can also identify with, I don't want to be the one that leaves the bed to go down to do the little chores. I want everything done for me. If we can grasp that on a human plane, understand what the Apostle Paul is conveying to us, theologically speaking. Jesus was essentially, continuously, the nature of Jesus is God. He was equal with God, and it is from this precipice, it is from this place that Jesus begins his descent. It's stunning to us. It's overwhelming to us. And note what he says in verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. From this precipice, from this height, Jesus begins his descent. And here are the stair steps of his descent. He made himself, self-imposed, he made himself of no reputation. He's implying Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. Jesus renounces any self-will when he comes to earth and to the cross. In fact, in the garden, he prays in obedience, not my will, but thine be done. He made himself of no reputation. He set aside his will for the Father's will. He took upon him the form of a servant. Now that harkens back to being in the form of God. He was being a continuous state, the essential nature of God. So when we read here that he took upon him the form of a servant, that is instructive as well. One said this, it was not like a cloak which can be put on and taken off. Christ was truly a servant. It was his essential nature. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. More than, get this, God in a body, he became the God-man. Fully God and fully man, Jesus is God. He became, he was made in the likeness of men. Follow this stair step. He made himself of no reputation. Not my will, but thine be done. He took upon him the form of a servant. It was essentially who he was. Not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man. That sounds a little repetitive. He was made in the likeness of men being found in fashion as a man. Maybe I could loosely paraphrase that to say this. He was discovered to appear like a man. Now, what we would grasp from that is in verse 7, when it says he was made in the likeness of men, we have a shift in focus now. Theologically speaking, he was Emmanuel, that is God with us. He was the God-man. He was made in the likeness of man. Now we have a shift in focus, how his creation sees him. He appeared like a man. What's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is when people looked at him, 
They saw him as a man. Paul is implying that though Christ appeared to be like a man, there was certainly much more to him than could naturally be seen. For God with us, for Christ to be made in the likeness of men, that is humbling. To be found in fashion as a man, to not have been recognized as God in the flesh, must have been humiliating. He performed miracles. He taught authoritatively, and yet we can unearth typical responses to him within Scripture. In fact, in John 8, 48, here's what we read. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Teaching authoritatively, doing miracles, their perception as he's being found in fashion as a man is, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. In John 6, 42, they said this, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? They could not recognize who he really was. They treated the king of kings, the Lord of lords, like a common man. That's how he appeared to be to them. Not only did they treat him like a common man, like the worst of men, they treated him like a criminal. He was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. The phrase is in there. He humbled himself. Instead of fighting back, Christ humbled himself. Perhaps there is no more instructive or confrontational phrase in this passage for us to apply than this one right here. From the precipice of equality with God... Jesus is God. He made himself of no reputation, surrendered fully to the will of the Father. Like we learned with Pharaoh, humbling is obeying God. He took on the form of a servant, not to be ministered to, but to minister. Made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He didn't fight back. One wrote this, after all the humiliation he suffered to this point. If we had been him, we would be screaming, that's enough. I want my rights. Don't you know who I am? We would have blasted everything to bits, but Christ, self-imposed, humbled himself. Consider for a second the mock, illegal trial of Jesus. With the opportunity to defend himself, he spoke not a word. Unbelievable humiliation. They mocked him. They punched him. They pulled out his beard, yet he didn't say a word. He was silent. He accepted that man's abuse through each phase of his mock trial. He never demanded his rights. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. God became obedient to the will of the Father, God in the flesh, Jesus, obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death. He was, as one wrote, obedient to the point of descending all the way down through the muck and slime of death that he might bring us out of death unto life. Remember the precipice from which this began and recognize that it ends with him willingly laying down his life in death to give us eternal life. And then there's a phrase, and it begins with the word, even the death of the cross. And the word even is in there to try to shock us. Even, be amazed, 
Stand back with your mouths open. Not only was he willing to die, he died on the cross. Even calls attention to that shocking feature. Not just death, but death on a cross. Not any death, but excruciating, embarrassing, degrading, painful, cruel death. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21, anyone that hung on a tree was accursed of God. That was the law. In the New Testament, in Galatians 3 and verse 13, we read this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It was written in the law. Be amazed at the height from which Jesus descended. Be amazed at the humbling, the self-imposed humiliation of Christ, that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The God who created the universe suffered the ultimate human degradation, hanging naked in the sky before a mocking world with nails driven through his hands and his feet. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's what we saw with Pharaoh. It was human obedience to God's will. Jesus here is teaching us that he is obeying God. He endured. He didn't hit the eject button when things got hard. He obeyed all the way through. And this humbling obedience to death went so far as to even the death of the cross. And we know from John 3, 16, it was motivated by love. Now we've worked just a little bit. What are you thinking? Jesus, what was in your mind? It was humbling. What do we mean when I say I'm to have the mind of Christ? We go back and we understand a big major Bible theme. We know that, that humiliation, not exalting ourselves, is equal to obeying God's will and acknowledging that we're not God. Jesus teaches us that it is obedience to God's will. And now, one of the most audacious statements in all of Scripture arrives in verse 5, where the Apostle Paul applies a lesson before he teaches it, when he says, let this mind, which he's about to explain, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the standard. The humiliation of Jesus should be the standard for how you navigate life. The humbling of Jesus should be the filter through which you view life. You, me. I'm not talking about the spiritually elite who make it to that really high level. I'm talking about the common everyday believer who's struggling to just make it through life. The standard for you and me is the mind of Jesus Christ. That should be the source of all of our actions. What mind do we see in Jesus? He didn't have a regard for himself. He was all for us. What mind do we see in Jesus? Jesus became a servant in his very essence for us. What do we see in Jesus? Obedience all the way to the point of death at the hands of his own creation in the most shameful way possible. The attitude of Christ must be our attitude. And this is the most countercultural thing for us to see within Scripture. But if you want your relationships to continue to struggle... 
If you want to continue to live unfulfilled, if you want to still sense some resentment and be controlled and dominated by cynicism, if you still want to lay awake at night, continue to pursue your own way. Continue to pursue the enforcement of your ideals and your agenda and your ambition. Continue to treat other people like they exist to do your bidding and your service, and you will ensure a less than life. But if you want what Jesus had, it begins right here, and it is stunning in verse 3. Let nothing, let not one thing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, the humbling of mind, the self-imposed humiliation, the mindset, let each esteem other better than themselves, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. How can I go through life like Jesus? How can I obey God and how can I acknowledge that I'm not God? Where life gets real and this story gets practical, help me to understand that. Two simple points that enable us to live out the mind of Christ. The first is look out for the things of others. Always. Let not one thing be done through strife or vainglory. You want to eradicate contention from your life, win over pride. Because Solomon says the source of all contention is pride. You want peace in your home? Here's the recipe. You want peace on the inside? You want to stop popping awake at night? Here's the recipe. You want to grasp what it would look like to impact the world with the truth of the gospel, unimpeded by carnality? Here is the recipe. Let me paraphrase again by saying, let each of you look not only on your own financial affairs, on your own property, on your own family, on your own health, on your own reputation, on your own education, on your own success, or on your own happiness. Don't just think about that. Don't just have desires about that. Don't just strategize about that. Don't just work towards that. But honestly, look towards, look to the financial affairs and the property and the family and the health and the reputation and the education and the success and the happiness of others all the time. All the time, it's all about others. That's what Jesus did. You say, that's an impossibly high standard. Then continue to live with a less than existence. Continue to feel like it, it could be better. It, it could be more. People need to do things more like I want them. People need to hear what I have to say. People should have access to my opinions unfettered all time. No, they shouldn't. Empty yourself for others. In a way, it is summarizing what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Find your joy in making others joyful. That sounds like the dumbest thing ever, doesn't it? Find your joy in making others joyful. I already makes me unhappy just thinking about that. My job, my life force, my essence, my ministry, my existence is to make your life better. How unfair. That's ridiculous. My whole being is for you first. 
That's a ludicrous way to go through life. And therein I begin to plant the seeds of cynicism and regret and resentment and bitterness and unhappiness. And I don't acknowledge that it's not your fault and it's not circumstances. It's me. I'm so proud and arrogant that I have prisoned myself in this cell of unhappiness and less than. Not only should I look out for the things of others, here's how I can do that, by esteeming others better than myself. One commentator said this, the point is not what others are, the point is what you count others to be. The point is not whether you are actually worthy of my help and encouragement and my assistance in your happiness. The point is, do I count you as worthy? Because the reality is, there are people that are really easy for me to put first. There are people that are really easy for me to love on. There are people that are really easy for me to esteem. And there are others that, man, it's hard. And if I only esteem and I only put before me those that make sense to do so, I'm not really doing anything at all. The humiliation, the humbling, the self-imposed humbling comes in when I deem you as worthy of it, whether you are or not. You say, well, I kind of like being nice to my family. Let me be honest, not all of them, but there are some within my family. But when it comes to the workplace, or it comes to the church place, or it comes to the soccer team, there are some people, Pastor, you got to recognize, I just hate them. I mean, they are idiots. They say dumb things. Honestly, they just look dumb. They always tell me stuff. They're always judgy. And it's that person right there. I just can't. And what Jesus would say is, yes, you can. You must self-impose, choose to esteem them better than yourself. Yes, that one who is not worthy. It's not about their worthiness. It's about your view of yourself and ministering to them. Count them as worthy. Because one thing I have learned about life is we are doomed to be surrounded by idiots. How many of you have already come to that conclusion? It's, it just happens. They're here they're here. We can't get rid of them. And to someone, this, this always stuns me, to someone out there, I'm the idiot in their life. How? Deem them worthy. How do I do that? Well, you always think back to the cross. You develop the mind of Christ. Literally, lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of a sense of entitlement. It's the opposite of you owe me. How does a Christian, how does the common everyday believer navigate life with that? The answer is Christ. Jesus Christ loved us. He died for us. He forgave us. He accepted us. He justified us. He gifted us eternal life. He made us joint heirs. When we offered him nothing, when we were anything but worthy, he did that for us. He treated us as worthy when we were not. He took thought not only for his own interests, but for ours. He counted us as greater. He esteemed us when we were unesteemable. That's where our humility comes from. One pastor said, and this really struck me, as believers, we feel overwhelmed by God's grace. Get this. Christians are stunned into lowliness. Freely you have been served, freely served. Christians have been stunned into lowliness. What that means is we get into Philippians chapter 2 and we see the height from which Jesus began his descent. And we see the depth 
of the degradation to which he went. And it stuns us. We're stunned into lowliness. So when we exalt ourselves, it is indicative of the fact that we are no longer stunned by what Jesus Christ has done. And we need to be reminded that as special as we think we are and as gifted as we perceive ourselves to be, truly we are miserable and wretched and destitute and naked and poor. And any good thing in us is born of the Holy Spirit. For as Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. All Jesus and only Jesus stuns us into humility, stuns us into gratitude. And when we begin to exalt ourselves, it is sourced in the fact that we have forgotten what Jesus Christ did for us. Because even now we're resting a little bit. Like, well, this really probably isn't about me. I, I still am kind of a level above the other people. And the moment that happens, you have completely missed the point. And you're doomed to spend 2024 like you did 2023. Wrestling with internal conflict because people just don't get you. They just won't do it your way. And they just don't understand you. And if they would just grasp who you really were, they would understand their life could be better. And you just look down and you condescend and you're dooming yourself to a less than existence. I'm not acting like this is easy, but I'll say this. The humility of Jesus is attainable for us. And if I were to boil that down, I would say, obey God, do his will. Be willing to acknowledge that he is God and you are not. And you're well on your way. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>